Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hey, listeners, this is Eric, one of the hosts of the We're All Little Crazy podcast. This was just an incredible episode with ESPN national hockey reporter for the NHL, Emily Kaplan, who's become a good friend. Little disclaimer here, the quality of the sound of my mic for this episode was not so clear, but we didn't realize this till after the recording, and you can't capture that original magic by re-recording, so we decided to go ahead and release this episode anyway. This was a genuinely eye-opening episode that we're confident you'll love because of the topics discussed. Enjoy. Now a show that's going to give you the truth about the biggest epidemic of our times. We're all a little crazy. Welcome back to the We're All a Little Crazy podcast. I'm your host, Eric Houston, along here with my co-host, NHL great Theo Fleury, also great mental health advocate. We're not joined by Darren Ravel, our good friend. He's missing this episode, but we'll miss him and he'll be back for the next one. He's trading Bitcoin. <laughs> Theo is joking there, but there might actually be some truth to that in terms of why he couldn't make it. And so we are joined, though, by an awesome guest, someone that Theo and I both have become friends with, and that is NHL national reporter for ESPN, Emily Kaplan. Emily, I thought we'd start off because Theo, the first couple of episodes, has talked about if he had a business card that he gave out, it would say on the business card, I collect people. And, you know, he and I talk on the phone all the time, we're friends, and you know, I don't know that necessarily I've used that language before, but it just makes sense in terms of what we do as an organization. Once you open up, once you're vulnerable, people feel a part of this growing group, this tribe. And so I thought I'd start off, Emily, we could have a little bit of back and forth about this, maybe because you might remember the conversation is how you and I connected, which was not that long ago. I mean, about a year ago now at this point. And uh, there was a, a donation that our organization received, and it was in a weird amount. Uh, I'm probably going to box the number, but something to the effect of like $1,027.39, right? The, the most awkward number. And I, I reached out to the family, one, to thank them for the donation, and two, to ask them, where did this number come from? And they said that it came from uh, the refund that their daughter received from a hockey association by you in Illinois um, for being essentially removed from the team for being open about her mental health, where she was having suicidal ideations and she was open with her coach about it, who was initially uh, very supportive the first day. And then after he checked with the Illinois Hockey Association, unfortunately came back with a message that she can't return to the team until she's her bright-eyed, smiley, typical self again, right? And there's a lot more to the story, which we'll probably get into on this, Emily. But when I read that story, heard that story, um, it, it my heart sank. And I, I had been watching you at ESPN. You and I hadn't been friends up until that point. And then I shot you a DM on Twitter, right? Is that how it happened? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're telling the talk correctly so far. <laughs> and and take us through if you don't mind when like when I sent you that DM and I said I got a story to tell you that I think would be perfect for you. Does it come across when, when a reporter hears that from someone? I mean, obviously you look at the other person's profile and you see what they're talking about and whether they're legitimate. But do you look at it sometimes skeptically and do you have to because someone's trying to pitch me and I have a platform to be able to talk about things, so I need to vet this out. Of course, people pitch me stories all of the time. And I would say that like 90% of them are not good or not stories I want to do or not fit for ESPN. Um, but there was something, you know, I think we had started following each other. I live in Chicago. I'd written like a pretty big story on Robin Lanner, who obviously, you know, you have a close relationship with and work with. And I knew that your foundation or, you know, same here was what Robin was supporting. So I said, at least hear this guy out, right? Like 
he comes from a good place. Like this could be just like a kooky story. This could be a story that like my editors would want at all. Um, and I remember exactly where I was. I was in the beautiful, beautiful province of Alberta, uh, quarantining for 14 days so that I could go to the Edmonton bubble um, and be there for that Stanley Cup final. And we got on the phone and I just remember being like, holy shit, this is actually a good story. This never happens to me. How did this just fall on my lap? And then the more you and I talked about why it was a good story and why it was an important story, honestly, I'm going to curse on this because it seems like you guys were comfortable with. It was like a mind fuck because you literally recalibrated my thinking on everything of teaching me how interrelated everything is, everything we do, of why it was so important that Robin Lanner wore that mask with same here on it. The fact that Morgan saw that mask, that's why she donated that's why she got connected to you. That's how she got empowered to share her story. And now where we're at a couple months later, she filed a lawsuit and is taking the power back and saying, this isn't okay what happened to me and I'm making sure this doesn't happen to any other kid. And that was so cool. So the big takeaway for everyone there is if you're pitching a national reporter's story, make sure they're in a place where they're bored and they have a lot of free time and then they'll listen to you, right? You called me time. You did. You had extra time, but but I remember the conversation where I was too. I was in my friend's backyard. It was my one way of escaping the city. He was living in Long Island at the time and we connected. It was just an unbelievably powerful conversation. And to your point of the shift of, you know, the paradigm of thinking of mental health in a very different way. And what I shared with you at the time was, yeah, Robin Leonard's, diagnosis is bipolar and yes you did a story on him but why robin wears same here is not because he's relating to the people who have bipolar right and i don't mean that in a derogatory way what i mean is we think in mental health in this very one-to-one theo has anxiety i have anxiety so i can relate to him or theo went through this i went through this and instead it, it morgan's case is a beautiful example of this morgan you know was dealing with something with her coach right? And was dealing with suicidal ideations, not something that Robin had necessarily been open about at all. And, but yet by seeing that hashtag, she's like, I'm not alone. And if I'm not alone, I can reach out to this organization. If I can reach out to this organization, back to Theo's point, we're collecting people, right? And so Emily goes on to write this amazing piece. Morgan becomes like, you know, this local celeb, which is so beautiful that people are reaching out to her and asking her for her story. And the family you got to know emily is just down to earth good people who are doing this because they want to help other kids in this situation because this happens so friggin frequently right well and and and, you know we want we want to change the conversation because what what the messaging out there has brought us is the highest amount of mental illness we've ever seen on the planet that's what this messaging has gotten us right And so every time we hear a story like this incredibly courageous, brave little girl who's standing up to the system, like it's, it's just awesome because it now allows us as an organization to jump on and support and say, yeah, this, this, this doesn't work like this anymore. This is how we talk about this. This is not acceptable. And we're we're 100 behind her. And and but but Theo, and this is you know it's going to sound like I'm kissing Emily's butt on this, but it takes media partners yeah. who are willing to tell the story in that way that bucks the system in order to get those messages out there. I mean, you and I are fighting the good fight on an everyday basis, Theo, with you know having these Zoom calls with you're going in the middle of nowhere in Canada and going <laughs> planes and you yeah. know barely being able to land safely. But when we're able to partner with folks like Emily, who've got the platform, but more importantly than they've gotten the platform, Emily, you know, I think the listeners hear the way that Emily absorbs things and says, okay, I used to think about it this way. Now you're helping me see it in a different way. That makes her a partner in this, right? And so Darren's a member of the media has become a partner in this. I was giving Emily a hard time before this call that we're going to get her seen here picture and put her story up on the site because she was telling us she had therapy earlier today, right? And that everybody's got a story, right? But if media isn't part of the solution, it could really be part of the problem is the issue in this case, right? And and I think 
what happens often too often, right? And, and, and Theo, I want to dive into how you and Emily connected because that's another interesting story. But what unfortunately what happens with media too often is, oh, mental health is a topic. If I write something about mental health and I champion mental health, one, there's a lot of buzz around it right now. It'll get a lot of eyeballs. Two, I'm doing something good. Instead of diving a little bit deeper and finding out what's the right way to tell the story. And that's my skeptical view on it. That doesn't mean it's right, right? We're going to hear from Emily a little bit in terms of how the reporters attack these stories. But when Theo says the right messages aren't out there, what we see so often in the space with the way that reporters tell the story is there's a headline that says, this athlete or this celebrity, and then this disorder label, right? So going back to the days of Britney Spears, Britney Spears, depression, and then erratic behavior, shaves her head, right? That doesn't help the conversation. It creates further uh, divide in this concept of a binary world of the mentally ill crazy group. Why is the name of our organization? We're all a little crazy. It's because it's all of us versus the healthy, normal fine group, right? And so it takes people like Emily who are willing to see it in a very different way. So this goes to now, I think will be, help you the, the end of this setup for the rest of this, this session tonight is Emily uh, tells me that she's doing a story on the NHL and some of the programs that they do or don't have being very you know uh, transparent about it for the help with respect to mental health of their athletes. And so we get to talking and, and I share a little bit of Theo's story in there and emily like in a shyish way which is really cute in a way is like do you think theo would want to talk about this would he be open and then i connect the two of them and then you guys take it from here because you guys have a great conversation and like you both text me after the conversation be like emily was great theo was great so whichever one wants to think what that combo was like i'll go what i remember from it first firstly i admitted to theo this like very embarrassing fact about me but in high school, me and my friends all went thrift store shopping. Like, that was our big thing. And I was a big Rangers fan. And I literally got a Theo Fleury Lady Liberty jersey. I'm so sorry. It was like $5. Um, but that is hanging somewhere in my parents' attic. So, like, I just thought it was cool to talk to you, right? Like, for a player that I knew growing up. And I, I, I just thought it was so neat hearing about what you were doing now. And, you know, I think the last most NHL fans have heard of you was the way you left the league. Um, we heard about you coming open about your abuse. We know that you had some substance abuse problems as well. And then you kind of disappear. And not necessarily disappear, but disappear from the public eye or these hockey fans' eyes. And starting to talk to you and hearing about the work that you're putting in, a lot of it behind the scenes to average hockey fans, um, and knowing how committed you are to mental health and knowing how committed you are to sharing your story, knowing that hearing it from you could empower someone else. That's what I got out of it. Also, you showed me this incredible app that like I thought was the coolest thing ever. And I I think I texted you, I was like, holy shit, this works. <laughs> so, um, you can explain it. It's a VR app that yeah. is cool. Yeah. Well, you know, that's like in this part of my life, like I don't want fanfare. I don't want notoriety i don't want anything i just i just want to save one person's life that's it you know and i've been able to save more than one and you know that's the cool thing about you know working in this space is um yeah a lot of people don't have a clue what i'm what i've been doing you know and and i like it that way you know because there's some mystery, you know, attached to it. But, you know, when, and I know in this space that when you get the opportunity to speak to somebody like you, like you jump all over it and you make the time because uh, getting this kind of audience involved in the new conversation that we're trying to create is, you know, is phenomenal. Because as an organization, we can't pay for that kind of media. Like we, we can't afford it, you know? And so for you to, to uh, you know, jump on board with not only the first story, but this story as well, you know, was, was huge for us. And, you know, we're, we're always grateful whenever we get to, you know, present the same here brand to, you know, to the world because, um, uh, 
you know, the people that we've been able to attract uh, to this new kind of conversation and the way we're talking about mental health is, uh, is it's been amazing. You know, Eric and I sat on a phone, uh, you know, what, three, four years ago with this, with this idea that we were going to change the conversation and what same hair has become and we're all a little crazy has become is like, uh, we would have thought, I don't know, 10 years from now, we would have been at this, at this place, but you know, it's happened very quickly. And, and it's because people like you um, are willing to share our story. And we can't, you know, yeah, Emily, you know, Emily Theo said, you know, we can't pay for that type of advertising. I'd go a step beyond that because in addition to, we couldn't pay for that type of advertising. That's like getting, you know, some kind of, you know, native looking ad in a major publication. You're someone who lives and breathes this stuff and cares about it. And it's important to you. Right. And so the value of that, I think, is tenfold versus what we often see where a brand does pay to get into what looks like it's, you know, editorial or whatever it is, but it's really something that they paid for. And so, you know, Emily, if you could tell everyone, like, where does your passion for the space of mental health come from? And, and maybe that's a weird question for me because I know you did the Robin Lanner story and you did this story on, on the NHL, the league and what they're doing. But when I came to you with the story, you know, um, for Morgan, um, the, the story that we were talking about earlier, I didn't necessarily know if it was a passion of yours, something you were open to talking about yourself and wanted to dive deeper in. So if you can give us a little background there. Yeah. And, you know, I think the reason the Morgan story spoke to me is because um, I saw such bravery in her and such openness and transparency in her that I did not have at that age. It took me a long time in my life to build. Um, I first started going to a therapist. I think my mom sent me when I was in third or fourth grade. Like, this has been something that has been a part of my life. Um, I always joke with my parents, why was I the designated patient in the family? It's very unclear. Um, but I was diagnosed with anxiety. Um, I later in my life, some depression and OCD. And those are things that I've managed with medication, with self-medication, with meditation, with exercise, with all the different things that we all experiment with and see what works. And I don't think it got until my 20s, really my late 20s, um, when I felt comfortable with where I was at with it um, and understanding of how I was not alone. Because when I was in fifth, sixth grade, going to a therapist after school, I felt like a total weirdo. I thought that was none of my friends were doing that. They couldn't know I was going. What is wrong with me? And I wouldn't want anyone to know. And that's why hearing that Morgan story in high school, I I was in the same position as her. I, I, I had some tough times. I, I, I never got to the point she was at, but I had serious mental health struggles. And like, maybe it's a generational thing. Maybe she's just a really special kid. But to see that in her of the fact that she's like, I can tell my teammates, I can tell you the media, I can tell everyone what I'm going through because it is what I'm going through and it's the truth. Um, that's what attracted me to that story. And as you said, like, you know, I've kind of weaved this as a thread through a lot of my reporting now. Um, and for me, it just all stems back to empathy. Um, you know, I, I want, I just think a little empathy can go a long way. And sometimes in this job, and we'll probably talk about the reporting process and some of the barriers there. Um, we're just so conditioned to treat athletes specifically as commodities, um, like not human beings. And we want them to say something. So it's a headline. And we sometimes forget that we're having a conversation and they're going through things and they're thinking things and, and just writing about them. Like I have all the power and, and like, that's a pretty messed up power dynamic. And I kind of just want to bring the power dynamic a little back. So people feel a little bit more comfortable. And in turn, I get something out of it because they share more about them. And therefore it's a more enriching story and a story that hopefully more people can relate to. And I think something that Theo and I can both, respect so much for what you just said you just said a lot there and there are a lot of beautiful things but i think even the most the most beautiful thing of what you said is when you shared that you respected and were able to take from morgan's strength something that you didn't have at the time and how much that resonated with you and that's so important for people to hear because what i want everyone to hear in that when you dissect that is here's this national reporter for espn for one of the big four or five leagues right in north america and she's saying her writing, her feelings about herself are influenced by this 15-year-old girl. That should empower 
everyone out there that when you share your story, you can impact anyone. You don't need to be Dak Prescott to make an impact on people. And it's so huge that that you put her putting that out there has has led to this. And so, you know, let's stop. You know, I think Theo will have a lot of fun with this, right? Because Theo, Theo, in a couple of, a couple of the last podcasts, was saying that you know he had to learn how to control reporters. And I, one of the things I picked up on him was that when they would ask him a question, he would ask a question back because they weren't trained. In, uh, yeah. you, know, how to, you know, so so Emily, look, you you went to Penn State and and certainly fill in the details after I kind of give this this alley-oop here. You go to Penn State and then you get a job working for SI for Peter King, like. That sounds like it's a, a reporter's, a sports reporter's dream path. So you want to take us a little through the early stages? Yeah, I like to joke that I'm like the Forrest Gump of journalism. Wherever I go, just like big things happen. Um, <laughs> and so I was at Penn State um, at a very interesting time. It was the Sandusky scandal, um, child sex abuse scandal. And I know um, it was pretty happy. And I was a student. I was paying out-of-state tuition at the time, wondering, like, what is this degree I hold? value like look at the school look at the decisions these leaders are making like what do people think of us but i was also a journalist and um selfishly it created these incredible opportunities for me to learn on the job i was training for the associated press um i literally got a phone call joe paterno was fired knock on his door and then the editor was telling me um on the phone how not to get arrested for trespassing like these are things that were like way ahead in my textbook that i just weren't there yet anywho um, I then got an internship at the Boston Globe, like I said, like Forrest Gump. It was just like the craziest summer in Boston. It was like right after the Boston. Like Bob Marathon. Ryan and those guys who like who who were on the staff there. Oh, Shaughnessy, uh, the OG. Uh, Pete Abraham I spent a lot of time with at the Red Sox park. Um, Tim Tebow had signed that summer with uh, the New England Patriots. So everything was just like a circus that summer. I think the Red Sox ended up winning and the Bruins were in the Stanley Cup final. Um, anywho, and then um, because I had those connections at Penn State as a student journalist, a lot of um, media were there and they were asking for help. I took a job at uh, an internship at Sports Illustrated. And yeah, I got to work with Peter King, um, see his mentoring. And honestly, the piece about empathy, um, I think I really got that from him because he views football as like the game of life. And these are all characters in it. Um, and he knows that everyone has a story and he builds that up and he likes telling those stories. And to do that, he needs trust and he gets access. And I think the reason people trust and give Peter so much access is because he is unabashedly himself. He's a goofy guy. He likes telling you about his beer and his travel nerdness and his sleep habits and all of that. But in giving himself, people give themselves too. And those are the lessons I learned from him. Um, and then, yeah, I got to ESPN. Well, that that's such a cool story because, you know, I I just finished speaking to a group in Truro, Nova Scotia for it, they call it was called Walk Tall for Men's Mental Health. I just got off doing a speech, and what I always talk about is vulnerability, right? And when you're talking about Mr. King, he's vulnerable, and his vulnerability gets him access, right? And in the mental health space, you know, the only reason why I'm here and the why, reason why I've been around for 13 and a half years and done 800 speeches is because I'm vulnerable. Is because there's no, there's nothing I can't talk about. There's nothing that I'm embarrassed to talk about. And it's that vulnerability that draws people in. And they just want to get to know more about you. They want to get to know more about the story. And so, you know, um, and vulnerability creates safety. When you have safety, that's when the magic of healing happens is when people feel safe. And the magic of reporting, it sounds like. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. Well, it's so interesting because as Emily's sharing that, right? I, I, and I might be making this up, but I could have sworn I saw a story recently where someone was giving Peter a hard time because in what he, some of his stories about football, he was bringing in some of his feelings related to politics, right? or just the social climate right now. And if, if again, if I'm understanding this correctly, Theo's political view would probably be on the polar opposite end of what Peter King's political view is, right? But now here you are, Emily, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna give everyone an insight into a conversation you and I had. Emily publishes her article, Theo is the main person behind it, 
And you start to get the cancel culture rats come out saying, Emily, how could you publish this guy? How can you give him a platform? He's got conspiracy theories, right? And and I said to Emily, I'm like, I don't I hope you don't mind. I'm gonna come in there and, and come to Theo's defense, which is I don't take sides with the brand and organization. I say, what you consider conspiracy theory is what a whole nother group of people think conspiracy theory about what your claims are, right? And that the whole beauty of having differences of opinions is that you can come together and talk instead of pointing people out and saying, that's completely outlandish, that can't be said, right? And okay, maybe that's a little controversial what I'm saying right now, but Emily, you defended that point. And you were like, first off, you know, and, and I'm paraphrasing you here. So again, please embellish off this. You said, Theo's take on anything outside of mental health does not at all diminish what his take on mental health is, where he's an expert. That was one thing. But then you said also, like, everyone's got an opinion in this space. Like, this is a place for people to be able to come and talk. And you were pretty cool about it. So do you think that was shaped a little by your experience with Peter King? Do you think you've always been that way where you've, you've encouraged debate and openness? Hmm, that's a great question. I don't know. I, I really don't know the answer to that. But I do know what I wrote about Theo, and yeah, probably saw what you see every day if you look at your mentions, Theo. Um, like, I don't agree with your political views. I, I don't. But when we're talking here, and we got to this point of this conversation, I think we're all vibing, we're all agreeing on things, we see the world the same way. And like, that's the coolest part about it. And I just think the world today is so polarizing that we want to just paint people as good, as bad, as black, as white, and so much more nuanced than that. And I think what really spoke to me talking to Eric about Theo is like, why are we focusing on how we're part? Why aren't we focusing on the ways that we are similar? And I think that's so much more powerful. Yeah. That's just me. Mm -hmm. I yeah. love it. Theo, go ahead. Well, no, I, I you know, uh, I always say you can't do anything to me right now that hasn't already been done. Like, You've been through a lot of shit. Like I don't think most people can say that. Yeah. You've been yeah. through her a couple times. But that's why I'm not afraid to deal with, you know, these these trolls that are constantly, you know, trying to cancel me. I'm not afraid. You know? And and uh yeah, maybe I'm way out there in my thinking, but you know, I know what I know. And I know that that uh you know we we are we are layering trauma right now that's what we're doing we are layering trauma and when you layer trauma you have the highest suicide rates in the history of mankind when you start to layer trauma and covid-19 is the most traumatic event that's happened since world war II. and so the world is already traumatized we've added another layer plus we've eliminated community and we've eliminated relationship and connection. So what do you think is going to happen when you do that? Well, and that's why what Emily's sharing here in that she's openly saying to you, which Darren does all the time and you do yeah. to Darren all the time, I have different political views than you, but what you're saying, Theo, is, and it's important takeaway for everyone is, instead of continuing to layer more and more of that trauma because you don't see eye to eye on one area which is politics i'm not saying politics is not a big area like I, I'm, I'm simplifying it say like, oh it's just politics but that's not preventing you from saying theo's a good person when it comes to talking about mental health and i see totally eye to eye with him on that let's join forces and talk about it and in fact like maybe that's even a stronger message when people have polar opposite views on other aspects of life do come together on a topic they want to change it shows people this rallying unification that can happen Totally. And, you know, when I was talking about the world being so polarizing, it reminds me a lot of something you told me, Eric, about mental health that I really, it's, it's almost stuck with me as a mantra. And it's people associate getting help with reaching rock bottom. And it doesn't have to be that way or it shouldn't be that way. Um, and I, I think of that, right? Like rock bottom is the most drastic place you could be. And that's when you think you need help. But like, if you're kind of okay, maybe okay, sometimes okay. You can get help then too, and it can be just as rewarding. Well, and your your mom 
had you go to therapy, I know you joke saying, why was I the one that had to go? And by the way, full transparency, I'm the middle of three boys. You're the middle of three girls, right? So, complex, of course. Yeah. <laughs> so we could, we could commiserate in that way, but you know, Theo and I, and then a lot of people that we have on these shows or speak to on an everyday basis, we hit that rock bottom before we went to go get help. And I don't think in either of our cases, it was a shame thing. It was like, we didn't know, like we reached for, uh, what I reached for was work. That was like my way of staying afloat. What Theo reached for is hell of a lot more interesting than work was, right? There was a lot of shit in there. Um, but we had to get to rock bottom in order to go get the help that we needed. And so we share these stories so that people don't have to ever get to that place. And when Theo says that trauma is laid on, upon trauma, we're saying the, the message of five and five is that there's not a freaking person in this world who's has not lived through trauma in some way. So instead of waiting for that rock bottom to happen, there's always something that we can be working on and there's always resiliency that we can be building for the new things that are gonna be happening in our life. Theo, I see you leaning in. So you mean no, you're getting ready to get off the bench. <laughs> no, it, uh, you know, I, I come into the mental health space from a trauma perspective, okay? And, you know, I sort of have this theory that, you know, we're all traumatized as little people and trauma can come in all shapes, sizes, forms. And that trauma leaves us in emotional pain and suffering. And emotional, any kind of emotional pain and suffering to me is mental illness, right? Because when we're traumatized, it affects the nervous system, right? And anytime your nervous system's affected, like the chemicals that you're producing to experience joy and happiness and all those things, like it gets skewed, right? And, and you know, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna add in there just for everyone, for like it's chemicals, but I also want to make sure people know it's way beyond just chemicals because we get fed this chemical imbalance idea of take a pill, it's gonna feel better. It's neurobiological changes. It's changes to the tension in our neck where the vagus nerve is. It sends messages between the brain and the and the gut where some of those neurotransmitters are produced. It's inflammation in the cells. It's changes in the way that our hormones are released throughout our body. So what Theo's sharing is when he's talking about these trauma events that we go through, it physically, it, it affects the biology of our system. And so we're spending then our adult years trying to work our way out of that, right? And and it's, what a gift that Emily had that she was going to therapy at, you know, that. But, but let me ask Emily the question. Was going to therapy and having to hide it from your uh, peers, was that trauma? Possibly. Probably. I've never I've never framed it like that, but it is. And I would say this about therapy. Um, that I firmly believe this. I've said this for like a lot of, like my brother-in-law uh, went to therapy as a young kid too. And um, you don't get something out of therapy if you don't want to be there, if someone else is telling you to go. The first time... I actually felt like I was getting something out of it and formed a relationship with a therapist. And as strong as it is today is when it was me making the choice that I want to go, I could get something out of it. And I think it takes some people a very long and hard time to get to that point. But once you do, it's so rewarding. And maybe what I'm saying that there was a gift of therapy at that age, not necessarily that because Chimiko on the last episode shared that, you know, she was meeting with these people who were trying to give her a basketball, a Nerf basketball to throw. And it was like a joke. Right. They were trying to relate to her in some way. And she was like, I'm not having any of this. But just the mere concept of going and working on your brain in some way, that was a gift. Right. So so it made when you went to go make that choice of who you wanted to see on your own, it was no longer such a far fetched concept. Like, I'm going to tell you that growing up, my parents were friggin' educators. My dad was a principal. My mom was a language teacher. But what we learned in school was there's a guidance office with guidance counselors and the bad kids who are messed up, those are the ones who go there, right? That Theo's raising his hand, he had to go there. But like, if you didn't speak up in class and you didn't like talk too much, although I did get sent to the principal's office a lot, but it wasn't enough for them to be like, bad kid, he goes on the bad line, he needs to go to the counseling all the time. So you don't even think those tools apply to you. You don't even think they're in your world, right? And I know that sounds weird looking at it right now because there's talk space and better help and all these other groups that are out there. And so people hear the advertising all the time, but I think there's a lot to be said of educating people of what the it really is with respect to, to, uh, to therapy. All right. So, so we got you up to ESPN. We're, we're out there right now. 
Talk a little bit about, you know, making the decision to jump to ESPN, going from football to hockey, both combat sports, but you know, what I do know about you is you have a passion for hockey. So I think that was a little bit more at your core. So take us through that change. Yeah. Um, ESPN brought me in for an NFL job um, and they interviewed me and I thought it went well. Then I didn't hear for them for a couple months or weeks or whatever it was. And then they called me and said, you know, we don't have a football job. We think it's good for you. But our biggest need right now is a national hockey reporter. Um, they had just laid off a couple, unfortunately. Um, and you mentioned a couple times in your interview that you loved hockey. And I was like, did I? I mean, I do. But like, why was I talking about that? Um, and to go back full circle, I have serious middle child complex. So I always thought my dad hated me. So inherently to get closer to him, we'd watch New York Rangers games together. Um, so now obviously I'm his favorite. But uh, yeah, so I took the job and it was kind of scary because um, I was covering the number one sport in America. People, I could write about a fifth string tight end in football and people would care. And hockey in America is not as popular. And it, in a lot of ways, it was a step back. Um, but I saw it as a huge step forward, one, because I was passionate about it. It was the one sport that I had kept my fandom of. And two, um, because I could own it. And, you know, there was less journalists covering it. It was, you know, more of a beat for me to feel like I could master um, and Peter King was the one that really pushed me and said, this is the best thing you can do for your career. And it was, I was, you know, you answered a question before I got to ask it, which is give us some insight of when you're interviewing, are you transparent with your current boss, a guy that's as big as Peter King? And it he sounds was, like you were, sounds like he was always, like, it was kind of almost like a running joke. Like Peter, do you want to keep me around? But like always encouraging me to go out and get a job. Do you want me to go be the Boston Globes Patriots reporter, the Denver Broncos, um, Denver post reporter, like, these jobs kept coming up and he thought I just needed to spread his, my wings and not kind of hide behind, not hide behind him, but like I was in this very, you know, safe space there. Um, and it was scary, but it took me the right time and the right opportunity to finally do it. Yep. All right. So, so you got this job at ESPN. Let's, let's fast forward a little bit because you've come out with a number of stories related to hockey and mental health. Robin's story, Theo's story. Um, you know, certainly Morgan's story is not an NHL story, but it relates to NHL because Robin was associated with it. And then a most recent one with structurally, I guess, with the NHL in terms of what they have in place, what they don't have in place from a, from a um, programming perspective. And I think it'll be interesting to hear what you learned, right? Like, I don't know if it's a, it's a summary of the article or you want to go a little bit deeper than that, because to then hear Theo's take on your take and to compare what he experienced and what resources were available to him versus what he's hearing now and then where we collectively need to go that'll be really interesting yeah for sure um the story it all really began when i was in the bubble um where you know covering in edmonton and started first it literally started like let's just do an exit interview of um how guys are feeling about their experience and as i was talking to guys the themes kept coming up of like they struggled the isolation was hard, the separation from family. Like they were talking about themes that sounded a lot like anxiety and depression and those type of things that I was familiar with. And um, that to me was pretty eye opening of just, um, you know, how vulnerable they were. Um, and so I was able to write that story, you know, and kind of just knew, okay, if the bubble was a hard experience, they have to be struggling again this year. It, it's just as difficult. So called a lot of the same guys, called some different guys. Um, and got those stories. And what I learned is, um, this shouldn't be a surprise to anyone, but hockey players are just like us. They're struggling just like us. They don't necessarily feel comfortable coming out and talking about it yet publicly. A lot of them don't, because as much of the discourse about mental health is out there, and it's great, and like you said, you can write a story and it gets all the clicks. Um, there's still a perception of, you guys are millionaires, you play sport for a living, what do you have to complain about? And I just think that's such a toxic way of thinking. Um, and it, it really could sell a lot of us back. Um, and what I learned is there are resources for them, um, but not necessarily ones that they, uh, there's everything's at their fingertips, right? I think if you call your team now and you're like, I'm struggling, they'll find you a therapist in town. They'll find you the best X, Y, or Z. Um, and they'll, they'll work with you. Um, but some guys aren't really willing to go there. And, when I said that people associate getting help with hitting rock bottom, the NHL does have this program. Robin went into the program. Theo went into the program. And it's supposed to be for when you hit rock bottom and when you need help. And what the NHLPA says is we totally are cognizant that we need a brand that's better to guys and market it better to guys, that it doesn't have to be when you hit rock bottom. It can be at any point. 
but I think they still have some ways to go in getting that messaging to players and then getting the buy-in. And that's not very different because I want to get Theo's take now of what it was like when he was playing. He's, he's talked a little bit about it on previous episodes comparing to what Emily found right now, but I wanted to share because, you know, there's going to be people listening who never played in the NHL, never played professional sports, never played collegiate sports, maybe aren't interested in sports, is that that's not such a rare thing for employees to have resources that are available to them, these EAP programs, right, um, and to not use them because there's not this understanding, there's not this culture bridge that's needed, you know, plug here for seeing here to potentially be able to work with the NHL one day is be able to transition and help uh, these athletes and these employees and what they are understand why you would be using these services, right? Instead of being like, oh, Robin uses it because he's come out that he's been open about this bipolar thing. No, that's not what it is. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's the lived experience thing with the traumas that Theo talks about. So Theo, you just heard Emily's kind of take what she found out. Compared to what you know, compared to what you think need, is needed, compared to what you saw when you were a player. Well, <clears throat> I would say the reason why I got to rock bottom was because I wasn't ready for the help. I didn't even know what help looked like, <clears throat> you know? And, you know, like one of the first times, you know, I had a panic attack, I'm like putting on my skates at MSG and all of a sudden I'm like, feel weird. Like what the fuck is going on here? And I'm like, what is this? Right? So, so it passes. I go on the ice to play the game, you know, score a couple goals, whatever, you know, everything's fine. But then it starts happening more frequently. And then, you know, and then I'm like, fuck, I don't want to go practice. Like, I hate practice. I don't want to go to practice. And I'm not thinking that I'm falling deeper into some sort of mental illness, right? And then, you know, the team's coming to me, like, is everything okay? Like, what can, is there anything we can do? And I'm like, I don't even know what the fuck's going on, right? But I also know that I'm drinking more. I'm doing more drugs, you know, and and then it comes to the point where, you know, I'm standing on the face-off dot. We're playing against, the, I think it was the Islanders. And I look at the clock, and the clock goes blurry. And next thing you know, I'm, like, on my back looking up going, what the hell is this? So I go into, into the dressing room, and the doc's, like, waiting for me. And he's like, what's going on? I'm going, I have no idea. I said, I just passed out in the middle of a game. I don't know what the hell's going on. So we kind of talked back and forth. He asked me, you know, like what's going on. My marriage was going like south fast. Um, I had so much money. I didn't know what to do with it. You know, I was getting calls from people like relatives who I'd never met asking me for money. I'm like, what, like, what is this? This is crazy, you know? And then I go to a next game and I'd watch the guys walk in. The one guy would walk in, then his family would walk in behind him, and then the rest of the entourage. And I'm like, this guy just spent 40 grand on tickets to come and watch him play. And I'm just like, this is in Calgary. I'm not in Calgary anymore. I'm not in my little bubble. I, I'm not, you know, I'm so far out of my element, you know. And it was just like, it was one thing after another after another. And then. You know, and then I start slipping up, you know, miss a practice here. You know, I'd show up on the plane, just crushed out of my mind. And then, you know, we're in Boston and, you know, one of the NHL PA doctors shows up and says, you know, uh, can, we, can we meet? And I'm like, sure. And he's like, you know, we're hearing all kinds of stories. We're hearing all kinds of rumors, all kinds of stuff. And he's like, you know, we got this program called the NHL Substance Abuse and Behavioral Program, and I think it's in your best interest to sign up for the program because we can protect you. And I was like, okay, so I sign up. So, so one of the first things they do is they send me to this therapist who looks exactly like my sexual abuser 
exactly. And I'm just like, what the hell? Yeah, I was like, so that was my first experience with therapy. So you think I want to go back to therapy? No, not going to happen. So I keep getting deeper and deeper and deeper. And then, and then Glenn Sather takes over, uh, you know, the whole range of organization. Now I'm at home in Canada at the end of the season. And he calls me, he says, uh, yeah, we're coming to get you tomorrow and you're going to treatment. Like what? So I go to, go to my first treatment center and, uh, the only thing I learned in that first treatment center was to do every single drug on the planet, every which way it can be done. That's what I learned in the first treatment center. So I made it 60 days without any booze or any alcohol and relapsed. And so from then on, it was just relapse treatment center, relapse treatment center, all this stuff. And, and, uh, and you know, this is 21 years ago. So nobody's talking about mental illness. You know, I'm convinced that it's my addiction that's, you know, that needs to go. But on the other side of the coin, I'm, I'm still having depressive episodes. I'm still having anxiety, all these things. And none of these treatment centers are talking to me about my mental illness. They're only talking to me about my, my addiction, right? And so what is treatment? Well, you go to treatment, they take away all of your coping mechanisms, they fill you a belly full of 12-step, and they send you back out into the real world. Well, what happens five minutes after you get out of treatment? You get triggered. And so what do you do? You go back to what you know, right? I know what my medicine is, you know, but in the meantime, you know, I'm, I'm getting put on clonazepam and Paxil and all those things. And I'm still drinking and doing drugs at the same time. So you like the chemical that I had in me was like, how is this guy even alive and functioning in this space? And yeah, the, the NHL substance abuse and behavioral program, I use a lot of those tools that I picked up along the way, but it wasn't until I was ready to get the help that when I asked for it, it was there. Up until that point, I was not convinced that I needed help. And so these the themes of what I'm taking from what Emily found out or from what you're saying is people who hitting a rock bottom, right? We're going to that again. The players who've gotten to the, the, that, that bottom place. And the, the fact that Theo didn't know to get help, which sounds like a lot of these players don't necessarily know do I get help? Is this the right time? When do I go? What is the help for? It all goes back to this building of community and culture within. Because Theo, to your point, if you leave a treatment facility center and you don't have a community to come back to, and there's not an openness amongst the guys in the locker room that you're friends with, that I struggle just like you do, you feel like you're on an island. When well, you how, how, am I, how am I supposed to be a part of my team when at the end of the night, everybody's going out for dinner and having drinks. I can't be in that environment. Right. Because I'm going to, I'm going I'm to, I'm going to, you know what I mean? And, and I, don't think, I don't think you're advocating for everyone in the NHL being sober. I think what we're advocating no. for is there's an understanding amongst everyone of what we all go through. And, you know, this, this is a great volley back to, to Emily here because Theo's understanding of what he was going through that, didn't help him get to the source was he went to what he heard probably in the media about himself and about other celebrities, which is addict. That's what I got to work on. I got to work on my addiction. Right. And so some of the ways in which I've been very critical of the media, present company excluded, of course, Darren's excluded is the way that celebrity mental health stories are shared is that the buzz terms are what's used. Right. So it's, and we talked about this a little bit earlier in the show, but let's use Vincent Jackson as an example, right? There really wasn't much reporting done. He dies in his hotel room, and all of a sudden we hear had a number of DUIs and then brain trauma, right? So, so people just want to assign these easy labels to it. Oh, he probably had CTE. That's probably what happened, or he probably he was a drunk, right? Like he was addicted to alcohol. That, 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 that alcohol, if that's what was wrong with him. And there's not this digging deep of he was a military family guy moved around to different markets, right? You're the biggest person in every new market you go to. That's difficult, right, to be that way. Um, 
and, and, and that's just one piece of, of, of his story, right? But, I, you know, you dive deep into what, what happened in his life. And so, Emily, as a reporter, right, when, when new topics from a societal level start to surface, right, mental health is still kind of new, especially in the sports world. How, what is the process for how reporters dive in to learn? Do they sometimes just write about it because it's interesting and they know it's going to get eyeballs? Do they do a lot of research before they start writing? And then, and then one other, this is a loaded question. Theo said last time, he thinks some reporters are great and ask the right questions and then explaining the process, if you don't mind, of who writes the headlines or how does it get edited and things like that. We don't write the headlines. We don't get the headlines. If I could put one thing out there, it'd be that. I just want to build up quickly what Theo just was talking about earlier, being in the program. Like the reason that Robin is so incredible is when he left the program, he said, I want to talk about it. I want to talk about being in it because the program is designed for you to hide. And how can I take all the tools I learned there and then go to my locker and not be able to just like have my pills out or have the doctors know or my teammates know um, that this is part of me and this is, you know, something that I'm still dealing with. Um, and that's why I think Robin is such, he's a trailblazer in this space. I really do think so. Um, anyhow, that's just my take on Robin. Um, for reporters, it's interesting. And, you know, like I think Robin probably a really good case study because he was one of the first um, players to just actively talk about things he's going through that are, like you said, a lot of buzzwords. I'm bipolar. I, you know, um, I'm an addict. I whatever, you know, all of these things. Um, and I think at first people wrote it as kind of like not tragedy porn, but kind of. Um, you know, where we write these things and people kind of want to awe and ooh and ogle at it. Um, and I think the most important thing is the way that Robin has been covered lately. And if you kind of trail, you know, the way it's been covered, it gets, you know, there's, there's less and less people who are doing more nuanced stuff. And it's, oh, Robin's talking about being an anti-vaxxer. Like, no, that's not what Robin was saying. Like, you know, <laughs> like Robin wasn't saying I, I only wanted to get the vax so I can, you know, release, um, you know, to get rid of these restrictions. What he was saying was, these restrictions are really bad for our mental health and no one is talking about that aspect of it. Um, and, and that's what he was saying, but I think sometimes it's hard to listen um, when you're only focused on finding those buzzy things. Um, and generally speaking about the media, I think that's the biggest issue is that a lot of places, a lot of reporters are given mandates on you have to get this many clips, you have to get this many subscribers. The most popular place to read hockey right now is The Athletic they're judged by how many subscribers they get. And I think they all do a great job, but just knowing that that's the pressures of the media sometimes, um, that they're looking for the more salacious story or the sexier story. Sometimes, um, you know, that's not digging in, spending the time um, and writing the nuance. Well, I think, you know, so what Theo and I have discovered, him before I did, because he went through what he went through well before I did, is there's actually a lot more interesting that you can find out about a person when you actually do the research and find out about them <laughs> and you hear their story. And, and you know, the, the, the headlines are maybe always gonna be the headlines, but, you know, the Drew Robinson story that just came out with, with the baseball player playing in the, in the Giants uh, system, um, you know, really diving deep and finding out what happened in this person's life. We are beings who are drawn to stories, right? Like, and yet, what the media often does, and, and, and again, I'm being critical of the media. I think you said it well, generally, right? Because we don't want to paint with a broad brush because we have a lot of friends who we think are going in the right direction with this stuff. But it's like, you know, when they can get that buzz term, that buzz term can get the click. But I, what I want media to think about, I know your job may be on the line with the clicks, whatever it is, when you're, when you're thinking about pitching your story, talking about your story to your editors, to your folks who are the decision makers, is when we perpetually just those top line words and those words alone going back to the whole binary model you're reinforcing the way in which people have thought about this topic erroneously for so many decades now and so you know i'll give a very you know x and o's example not with a reporter but just with a story if you continue to write a story that is kevin love anxiety ran off basketball court panic attack and it's that over and over and over again or um, you know, Michael Phelps, depression, suicidal ideations after the, the goal went away. 
and that's all you tell and we don't know about the, their daily life and what's been happening to them and why does training like an athlete why is that difficult on you what robin said the other day was like earth shattering to people like wow you guys actually have to only go from your house to the the arena and you're not allowed to actually go out to eat with your family right now yeah like these things need to be told. People need to hear these things. I'm not going to say that's the most traumatic thing, what I just described with Robin, but I was sharing that because it's a little piece of this bigger overall, and Robin's got so much more he's going to continue to share about his life in Sweden and growing up, I and mean, there's there's an intricate trauma story there. But I, I, I'm pleading almost with people who read articles right now to hear what Emily's saying. I'm pleading with reporters to hear what Theo and I are saying and what Emily's saying. And to say, we have to change the way these stories are being shared, because if we don't do what Emily's doing, if we don't do what Darren's doing, if we don't actually care to find out what is the story behind this, and we just put the clicks on there, we're actually complicit in, unfortunately, these trends being worse and worse and worse the way that they have been. No, I I just had a thought about, um, you know, my, my political side, okay? But I can tell you, if there was a liberal who came to my private message, DM, whatever it was, and asked me for help, I would do everything in my power to get that person the help that they need. Absolutely 100%. No questions asked, nothing. You know, at that point, I don't care. You're a human being, right? And I think, you know, and to bring it back to this conversation is um, uh, when you open that Pandora's box of figuring out why I'm having struggles, you can't play hockey anymore. It's done. It's over. It's finished. So these guys I'm sure are thinking in their heads, if I go down this road, I don't know if I can maintain what I've created already. You know what I mean? Because, uh, you know, when I started out in New York, uh, like I made it to the Olympics. I don't know how the frig I did it, but I made it to the Olympics. I got selected. I made it all the way to, to the last game. But I tell you, the morning of the gold medal game, I was standing outside our village with the team psychologist telling her, I can't do this. I can't play tonight. I can't, I don't know if I'm going to, you know, I'm going to mess up or something. And like, she had to talk me off the ledge because, you know, I'd already started opening up this Pandora's box. And then ultimately it ended in like the best possible way. But then I'm thinking to myself, I got to go back to New York and I got to play hockey again. I should have just retired. Because if you look at what happened after the Olympics in 2002, if you look at my story, it was an tr- absolute 100% train wreck the, West, the rest of the way. All right, but Theo, this is the first time I've ever heard you say that. So I'm going to play devil's advocate with you, and you can tell me if I'm completely wrong here. And Emily, give your opinion as someone who goes to therapist right now. You weren't necessarily getting the right help in a Kim Barthel who you found right now when you opened up that way. You also know, because you, I, I've heard you say it to youth athletes as young as 12 years old, to professional athletes, that there is a period that is awful when we open up, right? Like like Chamiqua talked about it when she was going through her therapy, that it's difficult and you're managing so much at once and you're not using, again, back to my case, you're not using work to be this tunnel vision myopic thing that keeps you away from this other stuff. But there's two things at play here on top of that. If you open up and it's done the right way, how it might prolong your career and actually allow you to be more productive and more healthy down the road. I'm not saying there's not going to be a lull and difficult period, but probably maybe even more importantly than that is if you just grin and bear it and you try to play through that and you're able to use the addiction, good luck when you're 35, 40, 45 years old, that that stuff that you never worked on and how it explodes on you, right? So I only wanted to clarify because the, I wanted, I didn't want people to think that you were advocating for it. Well, the players don't up, open up because they shouldn't open up and we're saying don't do it. 
you're giving some of the rationale behind maybe why they don't. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because it, uh, you know, in order to get well, therapy and recovery have to consume your life, right? And you're not thinking about playing hockey. You know what I mean? You're thinking about, I'm not well. And if you don't commit to recovery, which I didn't, I didn't commit to recovery. And I, you know, I've said it many times, you know, that's the point where I should have walked away for a whole entire year and went and got my shit together. And then if I would have came back, I bet you I could have played like five, seven more, seven more years if I would have able been able to, you Which, know. By the way, Robin took off time, right? Or Robin went to, and look at how much he talks about how like I wouldn't be alive right now if I didn't do that stuff. Right. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah. and, and and because I think it was important for people to hear Theo that like, yes, when you open up, there's this difficult stretch and you do have to commit to it. But how much more can prolong your career? How much more productive you can be when you do it? Yeah. And, and I like the fact that, you know, in the NBA and, you know, baseball now, they're, they're giving guys, you know, mental health breaks. Right. Because they know that when a guy's not at 100 percent. He's no good to the team. So yeah, take take a couple of days. We'll figure it out. And when you come back, you know, you're fresh, you're you're excited, you want to be there. You know, at the end of my career, I the last place I wanted to be was at the rink, you know, especially for practice, especially for you know, traveling and all that stuff. You know, it just I was I was done, you know, and and uh but uh well, Emily, Emily has talked to, you know, a lot of times you'll share off the record. I heard this from a player or, yeah. I mean, what, what feels describing, which sounds a little like burnout at that point, compassion fatigue, right? Paul, a bunch of different names that people put towards similar things. Um, Chimiko, again, I keep going back to her because her, the parallels between her and Theo's stories are mind boggling. And, and she says she was looking at building beer on the coach of the other team and just, like in the middle of a game was like, I can't do this anymore. Same thing Theo said, right? So Emily, do you, when you're hearing, maybe they're not saying that specifically, but when you're hearing from these guys and they're telling you what's going on, do you kind of hear this quiver in their voice of like, I'm, I'm managing and balancing a lot right now. And this is hard. Yeah. And you know, I think what Theo is just talking about of why guys don't get help especially um, as professional athletes. And I actually think this would apply to most all jobs is because their careers are fragile. Um, and there is still that stigma attached to getting help and to having a mental illness. And like Robin is the perfect example where he went, he was transparent about it, which was super rare. Like we said, no one really talks about the program. It's designed for you to hide. And then after all of that, guess what happened? He couldn't get a long-term deal. Like no one wanted to commit to him. It's hard not to correlate them after he had like such an incredible season. And why is no one offering him more than just a one-year deal with the Blackhawks did that following season? And so I think a lot of guys see that as, well, if I go and I get help and if I go and I take time away from the team and I go and I admit this, um, I'll be viewed as damaged goods and my career earnings or my career will never be the same. Whereas you described, yes, of course it can. And yes, of course, there is a way out or there's a different path forward or a better path forward. But sometimes it's hard to see that. Yeah, well, you look at my career. When I entered the NHL Substance Abuse Behavioral Program, basically that was the end of Theo, high performance, fucking crazy, angry dude on the ice, you know, putting butts in the seats. And, you know, there was very few... You know, when people, when reporters were reporting on me, they were reporting on my, you know, on my behavior, not my play, you know? And so, yeah, it was, uh, it was an interesting time in my life. And, uh, but you know what? There was lots of people around that wanted to help me, but I wasn't ready for the help. And if you're not ready for the help, you're not, you're not going to do very well. You know, that's, that's it. You know, and, and, you know, you can go down the big farmer route to put a Band-Aid on it to get you enough years and enough earning salary. But by the end of it, you know, you're, 
you're going to have a long road ahead of you, you know, dealing with. Or maybe a short road ahead of you, Theo. I know that sounds scary to say. Maybe a short road ahead of you. Maybe we lose these people. Right. And we we lose. And, you know, a good way to kind of wrap this is, you know, in football, you covered football, Emily. You know, for a while now, it's been talked about, oh, some of the, you know, physical nature of the sport. They're, they're investing in their early years of playing, knowing that it's going to hurt them in their later years, that they won't be able to walk or they're going to be hunched over or they're going to have brittle bones or worse, right? There's something to be said for with your mental health. Like, I know we're, we're bringing up the pitfalls of what happens when you open up, but I want players to hear this because you have players who follow you, Emily. I want them to hear, like, I'm not advocating for take time off when your career is over. I'm advocating for what Theo said earlier, which is, and what Robin's showing right now is, if you can dedicate time to working on yourself and focusing on it, how much it can potentially prolong your career. And that's an investment that, that they got to make, or a risk maybe, that they got to make a decision on. But they have to know the factors that will come into play when they retire, that just like those football players that we're talking about that might not be able to walk, the cognitive dysfunction and then how the brain and the body are connected and how that might lead to things like cancer and diabetes and all these other things. That's part of this equation when they're making that decision. And so Emily, I got to ask you an on the spot question that's selfish only because Theo, I now consider like a brother to me is you're a reporter and you've got to know Theo. And I don't think there's a person on this planet who looking at the stats wouldn't say that Theo is a, is a hall of famer by stats. If you, if I hired you as our PR firm, right? Okay. So, so for anyone out there who's upset with whatever Emily might say, I'm, I'm hiring her now as the field PR firm for why you have gotten to know this man. And for whatever reason, people who are the decision makers are making a decision for him not to have been in right now. What can you tell people about what you've gotten to know him as a person that helps tell this larger picture story that if his stats are there, maybe there's a reason we should be looking at why you should be getting it. I would just say Theo's a real one. He's a human being. He's got warts. He's got blemishes. He's got great aspects to his life as well. Um, and you're an open book. And, you know, if you're being punished for that, shame on those people. And I think that, if anything, speaks to hockey culture, how it's sometimes an old boys club that has a bit of limited thinking. That was way more succinctly said than Theo and I have ever said. <laughs> that was beautiful. Sometimes you're writer sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> no, this, this, is, this is why you're better at Twitter. You guys both. I, I go way too long. But um, <laughs> this has been an unbelievable hour, hour plus, Emily. And and I, I told you before this, we want you joining this alliance. We have the goal of the alliance is not the celebrities on the ice, right? It's all of us holding hands together. It's doctors who are talking about it the same way. It's CEOs and it's people like you in the media who have platforms and can help educate. And so it's going to be our honor to have you on it. And we'll look forward to sharing that when it happens. I wanted to thank you for, for coming on the show. Um, so on behalf of Darren Ravel, who again is, is here in spirit with us, as we all know him, uh, Theo Fleury and Emily Kaplan, this is Eric Houston, and you've listened to We Are All a Little Crazy. You just heard We're All a Little Crazy, brought to you by the hashtag Same Here Global Mental Health Movement and the Hockey Podcast Network.